The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Ken, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, we are going to the medieval era of Europe, and we are going to be talking about perhaps one of the most famous nuns of all time, Hildegard de Bingen. Okay. She is somewhat debatably gay, and we're going to talk about it. Oh, right. <laughs> Here for queer. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to ask the question, was Hildegard de Bingen gay? And to de- look at this with more depth, we are going to be joined by Lauren Cole, who is a PhD candidate at Northwestern University. Okay. She did her master's thesis on our lovely lady of the episode, and I am so excited to have her with us on Great. this episode. Let's get into this. So- We talked about Hildegard in a previous episode, actually. She is a fascinating, badass woman in history who defies the patriarchal norms of the Catholic Church in her time. She joins the nunnery and does such amazing work that she's bringing in all these donations to oh, wow. the church. And so people are, you know, the the church leaders are like, this woman's amazing. Like, yeah. look at what she's doing for us. And she uses that power to basically go off, start her own nunnery um, for all women. And that should be like, you know, modern audiences should go, oh, a space where only women can be, hmm. you know, <laughs> interesting. That would be a lovely place if I were gay, queer, something, you know, non. Yeah, not not interested in the male counterpart. Yeah. Um, okay. Also a great space. And what we focused on the last time we talked about yeah. her was a great space for female intellectualism. Exactly. And like building, each, you know, a learning and culture and an environment. Scholarship. Scholarship. Writing. Scholarship. Exactly. Very cool. I my bent doesn't go immediately to is this environment for queer women, but um interested to learn more about that. Yeah. So um we are going to ask her all the questions that there are to ask. Oh. Okay. Um but I also think, you know, it's important anytime anytime you're talking about women from different periods, especially periods before they had the words that we have. Right. Like trans, gay queer. Yeah. Um, all of those are 
descriptive of attraction, feeling, sexual activity. To those who identify female. Right. And when cult, when those words are absent from the culture that they lived in, yeah. it's hard to for us modern folk to put a label on that. Also, do we need to put a label on it? Can it yeah. just be like, you know, so so these are all really important questions to think about when you're looking at figures from the past. And I'm so excited to have an expert with us. Yay. Okay, let's get into it. Hi, my name's Lauren Cole. I'm a PhD student in the history department at Northwestern University, and I specialize in medieval European history. So I'm particularly interested in religion, medicine, and gender and sexuality in medieval Europe. And I'm here today to tell you a queer medieval love story between two nuns called Hildegard and Ricardus. I also make TikTok videos about medieval history generally, and also the subject of my research, who is the 12th century nun, Hildegard of Bingen, under the hashtag HildegardTalk. So if you're interested in consuming history in bite-sized videos, then please come and join me at Medieval Lauren on TikTok. Oh my gosh, I love that. I need to follow you. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I'm so excited to learn from you and to learn about this queer love story from medieval history. I feel like that's a very rare theme. So I'm so excited to, to learn more about her. Would you mind telling me a little bit about these women and when we are and where we are? Yeah, sure. So we are in the 12th century um, and we are in what's now Germany, um, but was then called the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and we are situated in a convent, um, so just nuns present. And that is the setting for our queer love story today. Hildegard is pretty interesting in and of herself, right? So what is, what's what's her story? How did why does she why is she so well known in history, even if her maybe queer history is less known? <laughs> That's a great question. And I feel like so many people have heard of Hildegard. You know, people hear about her in, in high school sometimes, in college. People hear about her in a in musical context, in religious context. So who is this, this figure, this kind of amazing figure? So, so Hildegard lived in the 12th century in what's now Germany. And she became a Benedictine nun at a young age, probably around five years old. And she rose to become the leader or magistra, which it was known then, of her community of nuns. And at the age of 42, she announced that she'd been having visions from God for her whole life. And he was now calling on her to share his messages through her. So just side note here, I find it very reassuring that she started her career at 42, because I feel like there's so much pressure to have your life planned in your teenage years and be super successful in your 20s. But for Hildegard, it was her 40s to her 80s that saw her become famous and write all of her works. But because she was a woman, she wasn't permitted by the church to teach or to preach. So in her works, generally, she's very clear in saying that they're not her voice, but instead the voice of God speaking through her. And she writes that she is unlettered and unlearned. But we can see in her writings that she's actually highly literate in Latin. She's familiar with traditional and contemporary debates in theology, and she has knowledge of music composition and humoral theory. So really, she's a very well-educated woman, but she needs to get around this ban on women teaching and preaching. 
So for her, it's not necessarily an obstacle to overcome, but really she uses the ban to her advantage. So she says that God has chosen to speak through her, a mere weak and uneducated woman, because he finds the men lacking, because the men of the church are not doing a good enough job. So Hildegard was was political. She was a political reformer. And the way that she kind of carves out that space to speak, I think, really shows that. And she did actually conduct several preaching tours in her lifetime. She was so well regarded. But in terms of what she wrote and how people know her today is a long list. I'll try and keep it brief. She wrote three works of visionary theology, which set her up as a leading kind of spiritual authority of her time. And they're still very much revered works in many Christian traditions today. She composed one of the largest surviving collections of medieval European music, which is absolutely beautiful stuff. You can find it you know, wherever on the internet. And I love to listen to it when I'm researching. She compiled medical works outlining cutting-edge medical theories of her time, so showing that she was learned in what we now call science, and that she likely practised medicine herself, which was quite typical for monks and nuns at that time. And just a little anecdote here, in her medical works, we find what I think is the oldest description of the female orgasm by a woman in the Western tradition, which is especially amazing when you think that she was a nun from childhood. So in addition to the theology, the music, the medicine, she was also a prolific letter writer, and over 300 letters survive. And in those letters, she advised popes, the Holy Roman Emperor, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of England, and many, many others. And we're going to come back to the letters to examine Hildegard as a queer figure and understand her queer love story. But in the meantime, one of my favourite letters is one she wrote to the Holy Roman Emperor. So that's the emperor of where she lived and who could make life difficult for her. She wrote to him, quote, I see you like a little boy or some madman, end quote, because she disapproved of his politics. I know, right? And she also invented her own secret language, which she used to communicate with her nuns. So all around, really fascinating figure. She produced an incredible range of works, and definitely a really important medieval woman to know about. And doesn't she also at some point like create her own... Um nunnery that convent that people can come to yeah yeah she does so she grew up in um what's called a double monastery so there's monks and there's nuns there um and as her fame and reputation grew more nuns came to join her and in around 1150 so in the mid 12th century she received a message from god saying you need to take your nuns and move to a new community and set up your own community And she said to the monks, you know, I've had this vision, we're going, basically. And they said, absolutely not. You know, you're famous, you're bringing in a lot of prestige and money to this this, um, organisation. So they would not let her leave. And she took to her sickbed and said that God had struck her down with an illness so that to show that he really wanted her to go. Various kind of ecclesiastical authorities came in and said, yeah, this is um, this is a, an illness from God. She has to go. This is a real message from God. So they let her go. She went and she set up her own community, a place called Rupertsburg, in around 1150. And this is the time, actually, when this queer love story happens that I'm going to tell you about. So it's happening against this backdrop of her gaining her independence, going to her to set up her own convent. Um, and 
as we'll see, tragedy does strike, unfortunately, at this new place. I read in uh, sort of zooming out, I read that the convents were accused of having a lot of lesbian queer relationships in them and that this was a problem that people were sort of worried about and and keeping an eye on is that a a pattern in her other than other than this one relationship that we know about is that a pattern in her experience um with other like is this something that is talked about you know I'm thinking about all these if I'm queer living in that time I probably would want to flock to a convent right like that seems like a yeah yeah um so uh you know was it ever like a stigma on her her fame and popularity um prior to this so in Hildegard's life there are no other indications that Uh, There was like lesbian or queer activity in her community. Um, The letters that we have that that kind of show the love story are it really. And importantly, they don't show any kind of sexual activity. It's uh, it's a love story, not a sex story. Um, But there were there are absolutely records of um, monks and nuns engaging in sexual activity usually um heterosexual sexual activity but there are lots of stories that come down to us about queer sexual activity usually these come down in the form of um things like saints lives or literatures so sources that we have to be careful about interpreting whether this was something that happened or whether this was something that was talked about um, but for Hildegard's community, it is, it's just these letters. There's no thought at the time that um, she is gay and that that is affecting her reputation or, you know, she's being seen in a negative light in any way or there's kind of homophobia against her community. There's nothing like that. It is just in these letters. And you told me before we got on that there's some debate about whether or not she she was gay. And you are pretty firm that she was (laughs) would you tell us a little bit about that yeah sure so let me tell you this love story right so I mean people call Hildegard a queer figure because of her very close relationship with her nun Ricardus and Ricardus lived with Hildegard for almost all of her life she helped Hildegard with her visionary work Um, and in a 13th century illumination accompanying a manuscript of Hildegard's theology Hildegard was depicted receiving a vision and writing down what she saw with two other figures present. So on one side, her confessor, Volmar, whose male presence kind of legitimised the visions, but also a nun standing behind her, probably Ricardus. And a vision is a very intimate thing. The visionary unites her mind so intimately with gods that they become one, that she sees what he sees. So for Ricardus to be depicted as part of this process is an indicator of her intimacy with Hildegard. In 1151, about 10 years after Hildegard had revealed her visions and moved to set up her own community at Rupertsburg, Ricardus was elected abbess at another convent. It's under these circumstances that we see Hildegard's devotion to Ricardus because Hildegard was absolutely distraught. She wrote to Ricardus's family, 
to the archbishop who commanded Ricardus to move, and even to the Pope to try and convince them that Ricardus should stay with her. Over the years, many nuns have moved on from Hildegard's community, and Hildegard had simply let them go, but Ricardus was different. Hildegard tried to use her visionary status to keep Ricardus with her. She wrote to Ricardus's mother that this was, quote, certainly, certainly, certainly not God's will, end quote. So repeating here how sure she was that God's plan was for Hildegard and Ricardus to be physically together. But unlike the often formulaic character of her usual letters, Hildegard's letters about Ricardus are highly personal and infused with emotion. She wrote to Ricardus's mother, quote, I beseech and urge you not to trouble my soul so grievous, grievously that you make me weep bitter tears and not to lacerate my heart with terrible wounds, end quote, by taking Ricardus away. Hildegard wrote to her archbishop, I, quote, enjoin you to release this sister immediately to those who seek and desire her, end quote, meaning, of course, Hildegard herself. And to Ricardus's brother, another archbishop, Hildegard wrote, quote, My spirit is exceedingly sad because a certain horrible man has trampled underfoot my desire and will, and not mine alone, but also my sisters and friends, and has rashly dragged our beloved daughter Ricardus out of our cloister, end quote. So the strength of feeling in these letters is so great and so unusual that in my view, it's enough to say that Hildegard loved Ricardus. But incredibly, we have a letter from Hildegard to Ricardus directly. Hildegard wrote this letter after it became clear that there was nothing she could do and Ricardus was leaving. And Hildegard said this, quote, I so loved the nobility of your character, your wisdom, your chastity, your spirit, and indeed every aspect of your life that many people have said to me, what are you doing? End quote. And when I read this quote, I want to weep because Hildegard loved Ricardus so much. And I know what's going to happen next. And it's very sad, but we'll get to that. So my colleague, Hannah Victoria, and I have just finished a book chapter coming out later this year about reading Hildegard's relationship with Ricardus as lesbian. And Hannah did an incredible analysis of this quote, which I want to share with you. So Hannah points out that Hildegard has a deep affection for the whole of Ricardus her character and her wisdom, so that's her mind, her spirit, that's her soul, and her chastity, which is the perfect body of a nun. So Hildegard tells Ricardus in the letter, I love you wholly, I love you mind, soul, and body. And I don't know about you, but I would not say that to my closest oldest friend. Like, that's the kind of love that I share with my spouse. And Hildegard doesn't say anything like this to her other nuns. She doesn't write letters like this to them when they leave. This is a special love for Ricardus. And it's not in the friendship realm. It's love. It's queer love. The people around her, other nuns, have said to her, as quoted in this letter, what are you doing? You know, they recognise that Hildegard's affection for Ricardus is unusual. It's perhaps romantic infatuation. Maybe it's not reciprocated. We don't have letters from Ricardus. Maybe it's not love. Maybe it is infatuation, but it's queer. It's gay. It's a woman with a deep, passionate, life-changing affection for another woman. And that's really why Hildegard is a queer figure from history. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, 
the video series. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10-minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. Amazing. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are yeah. fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs, at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood yes. who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, no, it's very <laughs> funny. But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we yeah. have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Okay. Um, so their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project and then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through instagram facebook we have a venmo account you can find us there that's awesome um, and they're making those contributions so yeah it's an amazing thing and if this is something that you're like yes that's what teachers need any every penny helps because it is a really expensive project so. it yeah totally and we had a match donor for a while there too yeah. which is really cool so definitely if you're people interested in those yeah feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. I'm sorry to tell the next part of the story because it is sad. Very sad. No, but don't break my heart. I mean, yeah. I'm already broken that Ricardus is gone. So tell me what happened. No, don't tell me. But do tell me, but don't. Okay. I'll tell it gently. Okay. Um, so shortly after moving to her new community, Ricardus died suddenly. And we learn, as in any tragic love story, that Ricardus did love Hildegard back after all. Ricardus's brother, the Archbishop, writes to Hildegard to inform her of Ricardus's death. And he writes, quote, I ask as earnestly as I can, if I have any right to ask, that you love her as much as she loved you, end quote. So Ricardus had been vocal about her love for Hildegard to her brother. And by saying to Hildegard, if I have any right to ask, the brother acknowledges that he has separated two women who really deeply loved each other. And now one of them is dead. And Hildegard writes back to the archbishop, reflecting once more on what she loved about Ricardus. She writes, quote, she was like a flower in her beauty and loveliness in the symphony of this world. Later, she writes, quote, although the world loved her physical beauty and her worldly wisdom while she's still alive, my soul has the greatest confidence in her salvation, for God loved her more, end quote. So in my view, this is a tragic love story in which the queer love between the subjects is plain to see. To say, you know, they were just close friends erases the strength of feeling in these letters and it erases queerness in history and the queer inheritance that we deserve to know about brother man he's the worst 
but I guess he got it right in the end, acknowledging it. That's good. Exactly. And that, that letter, when you read it, it does read in a kind of guilty way. You know, he knows, yeah. he knows that he separated them and that he's kind of, then that this was not not a very nice thing to do to Hildegard or to Ricardus. So how, this is later in her life, right? How much longer does Hildegard live? So Hildegard lives for about another 30 years oh, wow. okay. after Ricardus passes away. Um, and there is an age difference between the two of them. So when Ricardus dies, she's probably about 28 and Hildegard is in her early 50s. So there is an age gap between them. But Hildegard does, yeah, she goes on to live into her 80s. So about another 30 years. Wow. Does this impact, like, is there a change in her theological writing? Yes. Okay. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm nodding enthusiastically because this is what um, my colleague Hannah Victoria and I wrote about in our book chapter for the book Medieval Mobilities coming out later this year. So we noticed in our in both of our research that in the 1150s, there's this change in the way that Hildegard depicts female bodies in her work. So this is something that she comes back to a lot. She um, she draws on the figure of the Virgin Mary, the figure of Eve, of Adam and Eve fame, um, a lot in her theology. And she talks about feminine images and female bodies. So before the 1150s, in her first work of theology, she describes female bodies or depicts female bodies in quite typical ways. And after around 1150 to 1152, she starts venerating the chastity of Mary um, a lot more. And she starts using what Hannah has found to be some erotic language in how she describes chast Mary's chastity. And then in her medicine as well, she starts depicting Eve as a more positive figure. She starts depicting Eve's fertility as more positive. So what Hannah and I have argued is that post-1152, uh, so post the death of Ricardus and the move to set up her own community at Rupertsburg, Hildegard's view of the female body expands, becomes much more expansive. So rather than viewing a traditional binary between like good Mary and bad Eve, she includes... Eve's fertility and Mary's virginity in her view of what positive womanhood can be. That's really fascinating. You have behind you these like beautiful visuals from her visions. Would you mind describing some of them to, to our yeah, audience? Because sure. they're so interesting. So this one in the middle is Hildegard's vision of the universe. And this is something I actually have on a little canvas tote bag that I carry around with me all the time, so I can tell people about it because I love it so much. Um, so this is so this is the universe. It's kind of uh, egg shaped, I suppose, but it also looks like a vagina, right? Yeah. So it's it's that shape. It's got this kind of opening in the middle. Um, it's got this which could be the clitoris it's got this which could be the urethra so a lot of people have kind of looked at this and very much seen a piece of kind of female anatomy so I absolutely love this and will take any opportunity to show it to people on my canvas <laughs> tote bag um, and then 
<laughs> this vision over here, this is the fall of Adam and Eve. So this is super interesting because Eve does not have a body in this vision. So Eve, it, this is the kind of pre-1150s Hildegard. So this is pre ricardus's death. So here Eve is depicted as these uh, this sky with stars in it. And the same here, you can see the same kind of stars coming out of the side of Adam. So in this, Eve doesn't have a body, a physical form yet. She is just a prefiguration of all the human lives that will come. That's what all these stars are. Um, but after uh, Hildegard experiences the death of Ricardus and moves her convent to Rupertsburg, she depicts um, she depicts Eve with a physical form um, and a positive, fertile physical form in her medicine. So I love I, these two visions, especially. I really love. Mm, wow, that's fascinating. It's interesting that her own experience of love, which it's hard to know, I'm assuming that this is her only experience of that, but it's the only one we have evidence of, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it really changes her her whole theology. And um, she is a proponent of the divine feminine, um, right? This this idea that that God and, and spirituality can can be feminine and that's that's not a bad thing that the feminine mm -hmm, isn't mm -hmm. equal to these negative things um yeah absolutely thank god she did that what kind of impact did her ideas and theology have you know a lot of women who write you know, I'm thinking about Mary Wollstonecraft and mm -hmm. de Gouge, like when they write these sort of groundbreaking prolific things um mm. it doesn't necessarily change the society around them does mm. is there is there an immediate impact in her life that's a really good question and the question of Hildegard's impact is a difficult one because she has a lot of immediate impact she's very famous in her lifetime and after her lifetime a lot of women experience visions from God, have mystical experiences. And that's not necessarily something we could directly trace to Hildegard, but she's an early example of um, late medieval female women mystics. Um, but then in terms of her impact kind of later, she is not as impactful as we might expect. Her works are kind of forgotten for a while she is she remains popularly venerated in the catholic church but unfortunately she does not manage to become a saint so after her death her community of nuns put forward that she should be canonized to become a saint um, and she is popularly kind of venerated as a saint but she doesn't her case doesn't make it over the final hurdle Right. So she only actually becomes a fully fledged saint in 2012 in the Catholic tradition, which is you know, incredibly recent. So her impact starts coming to the fore again in the probably late 19th, early 20th century, um, when a lot of German scholars begin working on her and she regains massive popularity in the later 20th century in 1998, which was the, I think, 800th anniversary of her birth. 
there is a, a massive proliferation of works on Hildegard. There are people putting on her her music performances, people staging her play, people um, promoting her theology and her medicine. And that's when she really becomes a, pop, a very, very popular figure again. And now I hear a lot of people say, a lot of women especially say to me, oh, Hildegard, she's my confirmation saint you know, in the Catholic tradition. So I really think that she's becoming very popular again and is someone really important to have in curricula. But she was, she didn't have as much impact kind of straight after her life in that intervening period between then and now as as much as we would expect. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, 2012, that's really great for, for her. Wow. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to share with our audience? Sure. Yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about um, how we use queer theory in history. That's okay. Um, So I wanted to just address a couple of common criticisms which are made against queer history or using queer theory in history um, and address those. (laughs) So first, I think the pushback against calling Hildegard a queer figure comes from a misunderstanding of what queer theory and queerness are. And that misunderstanding is that it's all about sex, right? So Hildegard and Ricardis were both very dedicated nuns who took a vow of chastity and very much praised the virtue of chastity. And there are historical records and stories of monks and nuns having sex, sometimes with each other even, but nothing like that exists for Hildegard and Ricardis. So although Hildegard talks about the physical beauty of Ricardus, her focus in the love story letters is this kind of all-encompassing, all-consuming, beautiful love. Hildegard loves Ricardus' soul, mind, and specifically her chaste body. She admires Ricardus' chastity and she extols chastity as a virtue throughout her writings. So to call Hildegard a queer figure is in no way to suggest that she was sexually active. And I think we, the, the speculation around that moves the conversation to a reductive place, to a yes or no question. And it doesn't help us to better understand Hildegard or to better understand what being queer meant then or means now. Centering the, the question of queer identity on sexual activity is a way, in my view, for people to dismiss calling historical figures queer. And I reject that. So that's the first common criticism. But another criticism that's levied at queer histories is that it's anachronistic to call historical figures queer. And I think here there's a perhaps sometimes willful misunderstanding of what history is and what historians do. What we do with the past is read our sources and interpret them, right? So in this example of the Hildegard Ricardus love story, we've looked closely at the letters Hildegard wrote We've identified that she describes Ricardus in strongly affectionate terms. We've identified that this was unusual because she didn't write letters like this to or about her other nuns. And she states herself that other nuns think Hildegard's behaviour towards Ricardus is unusual and a bit too much. So we've done our rigorous source analysis. We've got something we'd like to explain. And one of the interpretive frameworks that we can use is queerness or queer theory. So using this framework, we can say, well, I think this behaviour is queer love. And when we do source analysis, we're very firmly in that source's time period. 
we're looking at it in the original language, we're comparing it with other sources from the same time and identifying what's considered unusual or different to that 12th century audience. And that's what makes it not anachronistic. We're very firmly rooted in what the sources are saying. And then we're looking for ways to understand and describe what we found. And that's where queer theory comes in. So here's a great thought exercise that I first heard from a scholar of trans history, Gabrielle Bukowski. Is it anachronistic to call the medieval period medieval? Because they didn't call themselves that. The term was coined at the end of the period, and it means a middle time between antiquity and the Renaissance. And no one thinks they're living in a middle period, right? So is the term medieval anachronistic? No, of course not. No one thinks it is. It's just what we use now to understand what happened then. And queerness is the same principle. So for me, history is about finding out what happened and why, but it's also about understanding ourselves. And using queerness as an interpretive framework does both of those things. It gives us a richer understanding of the past and simultaneously undermines homophobia and transphobia in our modern society by saying people have always been queer. Queer role models are important and Hildegard is one of them. Well, that's a really powerful way to end this. Um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Thank you. <laughs> I know the examples are endless and I'm so grateful to know not only do we have this queer person in history um, who was not only popular, but a badass and, you know, a Mm -hmm. thriving leader and writer um, and was respected in her time. Right. Um, And then, you know, you have, brought to light for me her, her queerness and I am so thrilled to know to know that and to know that she's also in a, in a church right like doing religious mm-hmm. stuff yeah in that time because I think there's a narrative that you can't be aligned with a religious doctrine and also be mm-hmm. you know queer or even female you could argue too um, yeah yeah and here's a woman who's both of those things and is like, yeah, mm-hmm. I still love church and God and all of these things. And here's what I think about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Like ways of living are whatever you want, really. Ways of living are expansive. And just because we've decided in our contemporary moment that you can't be, you know, say you can't be religious and gay, whatever, that doesn't mean that that's always been true and always has to be true in the future. And looking at people like Hildegard, looking at history in general, is a way for us to break down what we think is wrong with the world today and try and build back a better world. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you so much. I can't wait for you to publish your book so that, which you haven't written yet, but when you do, it's going to be great. <laughs> <Thank you so laughs> and I look forward read. to publishing them, maybe not to writing them, but I look forward to them being out there in the future. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.